Uh, I do hope that y'all are, are doing well, and if you have your Bibles, I encourage you now to turn to Exodus chapter 15, and we'll begin reading there in just a moment. Um, the people of Israel have been set free out of Egypt because the Lord has humbled e uh, Egypt um, with the strength of his strong arm. He has led his people out of Egypt and through the Red Sea. That's what we talked about last week last week, through the Red Sea on dry land. And then the same waters as the people went through on dry land, the walls of the waters that were raised came crushing down on the armies of Egypt, crushing them and drowning them. And as we've been saying over the last uh, several weeks, that this is, this is like one of the, the biggest and greatest and most epic stories in, in all the Bible. It's, it's in that in that, that, you know, that top five or, or top ten. This is like one of the defining moments of the, of the Old Testament. But the question is, is now that we get to chapter 15, leaving Israel on the eastern bank of the Red Sea, as they've seen now the, the dead bodies of Egypt washing up on the shore, what, what now? What what are they to do? They've seen the awesome power, the awful power, in a sense, of, of God's great power to destroy Egypt and to save them, but yet to lovingly save them. What are God's people to do? What should they do in light of such a glorious and amazing salvation? How do we respond? How do we respond to such a glorious and marvelous salvation? We may not be standing on the east bank of the Red Sea and watching dead bodies wash up on the shore of God. But we've certainly witnessed death to life. What are we to do? How are we to respond? Let's look to chapter 15 and let's hear how Israel responds. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God. I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea. He has chosen officers were sunk into the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have it filled over them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. 
and they sank like, they sank like lead in mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretch out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, tremble, pangs have seized inhabitants of Philistia. And the chiefs of Edom, dismayed, trembling, seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by by whom you have purchased, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry land in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess and the sister of Aaron took the tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord! For he has triumphed gloriously. The horseman and his rider he has thrown into the sea. This is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. So what did the Israelites do? They sang. They sang a song to the Lord. Now, is that what you have, would have expected? Singing. Maybe to move on, to get away from the sea. To move on, to, to, to go to the, take the next steps. But no, they, they sang. In our Bibles, it's called the, the Song of Moses. Or sometimes, um, sometimes also it's called the, the Song at the Sea. The Song at the Sea. And in all the Bible, this is the first song recorded. In a sense, this is the prototype of all the songs that are to come. Even the song, even the Psalms of David. It sounds a lot like the Psalms, doesn't it? It is a prototype. And this song is not only quite important because of its biblical significance, but as we see here in Exodus 15, right after chapter 14 of the great deliverance of God through the Red Sea, this is a quite historically significant song, right? And it's important then that we hear this song in the context of that significant time of deliverance and salvation. Do you remember that the Lord told Moses, and Moses then went on to tell Pharaoh that I will set my people free. You will bring my people out of Egypt that they may go into the wilderness to do what? To worship and serve me. 
And so what do we see in sense of a, the beginning of the fulfillment of that? They are drawn into the wilderness to worship and serve the Lord. In reading the, con- the text, you know, I, I, I contemplated this week, being that it's a song, should I, should I just sing it out to you? Because it's a song, right? We should, we should sing it out, or I should sing it out. So I, I even began practicing it a little bit, trying to sing it that sign to maybe a tune that would come to my head. And, and in my goofy mind, the only tunes that my, that my brain could come up with sounded like a show tune or a circus tune or something goofy uh, like that. So I've, I've spared you of that, and we've just read that, because not only because that would be terrible and I think a disservice to the, to the word, but, but honestly, we, we don't have the music. We don't have the tune. We don't have the, the, the notes and the meter of this particular song. And I think very specifically, because what's more important here is not the music or the tune, but the words, the lyrics. The lyrics themselves, what was being sung, and the very act as well. So what's being sung, and also the very act of the people of God responding in song. Chapters 1 through 14, as we've gone over, is the grand narrative of how God saves his people out of Egypt, brings them out of slavery. He hears their pleas. He remembers his his covenant. He sends his deliverer Moses, and he brings them out of slavery. Slavery. He delivers them from death, and now what do the people of God do in their song? They retell God's good work. They retell of God's strength. They retell of God's glory and his might to overcome the enemy and to save them, to redeem them. And in a sense, what we read here is we read a liturgy of God's people and how God's people are to worship him. The retelling and the remembering of what the Lord has done. Now, now this song, although it is the first song in, in, in the scripture, it, it, is, it also is in a sense, sort of something not new of this remembering and retelling. Because if you remember back before God delivered them out of Egypt, God gave them other forms of liturgy for them. God gave them two very special particular meals, the Passover and the, uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And they were to celebrate these two things as a what? As a remembrance of God's great work to deliver them. And each of them have very different significances and nuances that with, built within them. And as they celebrated and took parts of these meals, each of them had particular acts that were, that were acting out and showing what God has done, God's great work to help his people and then to help them instruct his people how to remember throughout all the generations of the faithfulness of God to bring his people out of slavery and into freedom. And so now, here in chapter 15, there's the the act of remembering again. But this time in song of celebrating and retelling and remembering and declaring and worshiping. Worship, what we worship, shapes us. What we worship shapes our culture. We see the idols of our culture, and that has shaped our culture. 
What Israel worshipped shapes them. What we worship shapes us. Worship matters. What we worship is what we will become. And the content then of our singing of what we worship and the act of singing by God's people matters. So what do we notice about this song in chapter 15? Is this song about the great hero Moses who stood at the sea with his hands raised up? No! Is this about the bravery of Israel by faith to walk through the waters on dry land? No! This song is about the Lord and His faithfulness and His righteousness and His strength and His power. The content of their songs are about the Lord. He is the subject. He is the focus. He is the center and the object of worship. And therefore, should the content or the subject of our worship be any different? The means by which we worship, the music, the lyrics, or the music and the tunes or the instruments may be different. But the subject and the content should always be the same. Our singing is about God and our relationship with Him. And so from this song this morning in Exodus chapter 15, I want to show you three distinct reasons, not only of the content of what we sing, but three distinct reasons on why we sing. And we need to be reminded of this. And I, and I have to say, just kind of in light of what we've done already this morning in singing, this will be an easy sermon for you to hear. Because you sing. And so praise God, may we be encouraged then evermore to sing even more, um, even more joyfully. So first, sing of his redemption. Whenever God delivers his people, God's people sing. They worship. In Ezra, when Israel came back from captivity to the land that the Lord had given them, they sang. After Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper on the eve of the, on the, eve of the cross, which would bring about the deliverance of his people from sin and death, he and his disciples sang. At the sea, God's people sang unto the Lord because of their salvation, their deliverance, their redemption. And we see later in the text, I think it's just all wonderful. Then the later text in verses 20 and 21, where you see Miriam, Moses and Aaron's sister, lead the, the women of Israel in song and dance and playing of the tambourines as they echo verse 1, sort of as the, the refrain to God, singing, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. And what we hear already at the beginning of this verse and the last verse as the refrain of this song, in a sense, that salvation demands a song. What's the response of God's people? A song. Whenever the Lord does something great, he deserves to be praised. 
God's people cannot be silent. We know what Jesus says, that if my people don't worship me and praise me, the very rocks will cry out. We cannot be silent at the great salvation and deliverance of our God. Every believer, every Christian here this morning should be accustomed to singing unto the Lord. Not because you have a good voice. Some of you do. Not all of us have good voices. I get that. That's fine. Blah, blah, blah. We don't care. Some of you can't even keep a tune or a key. Doesn't matter. We sing because of what the Lord has done for us. And that is good. And that is why music plays such a massive part, not only in the church, but we see how it has a massive part even in culture, right? It has the power to move us. It has the power to, to change things for the good and for the bad. The church didn't just start adopting singing and music because all of a sudden we can write music down or we can record it or we have instruments or sound systems or sound coaches. No. The church sings because it is biblical. It's what God's people do. And as being created in the image of God, he has made us to be creative and feeling and expressive particularly in the joy and gladness that we find in our Savior, God. We do not make things up about God in our songs. We don't make things up about life to sing about. The things we sing about are right there revealed in God's word. And as God's people, we've experienced his grace and his goodness and his glory, and so we should sing about them. And since there is no music here, in chapter 15, we have the lyrics only. And that should tell us something, that words matter. Songs are given and songs are sung to help us remember, to help remind us, they are there to instruct us on God's redeeming grace. This is the way you should treat songs that we sing. In particular, like this one. It's the way they treated it. Consider it as a portable packets of theology ready to be used at a moment's notice. And in this song, what clearly shines forth is that they understood very personally that the Lord was their redeemer. Again, you look at verse 1. What has the Lord done? What, what did the Lord do? He triumphed gloriously over the horse and rider. Verse 2, he says he's, he is their strength and their song because he is my salvation. I will praise him, exalt him. He is a man of war. The Lord is his name. He fought for us. He destroyed Pharaoh's chariots and armies that were coming out to destroy us. He sunk them into the Red Sea. Like if you threw a rock into a lake. The rock's not going to float, is it? And like Egypt, they sunk. And in all of those words that we see, 
They are words extolling the Lord, worshiping the Lord because he has redeemed them. Verse 13 sums it up. I think in one of the most important lines in all this, this psalm, verse 13, it says, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. The idea of redemption points us back to chapter 6 when the Lord promised his people, told his people that he would do what? That I will redeem you. You know, there's, there's, there's no other word I think in, in all the Bible that, that in a basic sense describes the gospel better than the word redeem. There's no other word. It's an economic word. We understand that. You have a coupon. We, people used to have coupons, right? We don't do coupons anymore, unfortunately. Uh, maybe coupons come on apps. But if you have a coupon and you go to the store, you give them the coupon to do what? To redeem the 50 cents off of the can of tomato soup. Or the quarter or the nickel. I don't think 50, 50 cents seems a little expensive, but the nickel. To redeem them. But this word here in the Bible is more than just redeeming tomatoes. It's more than just a financial transaction. It's the, it's the redemption of people. And in particular in the Bible, and as we read in the 1689 this morning, particularly God's people. As we saw there in the 1689 of God's elect because of the redemption, right, that, that God has done. We've seen in the Bible the context of the redemption of God's people within this loving relationship to do, to do what? To bring his people out of bondage and to set them free and to bring them into the promised land. This word is often associated with another kind of person described in the Bible, and that is the, the redeemer, the, the kinsman redeemer, a family member who would protect their, uh, their family when, when something particular happened in their family, some particular situation, right? So if a, if a family member was murdered, the redeemer would, would make sure that justice was done for their family. Numbers 25. If a family member was in debt and was forced to sell their their land to pay their debts. A, a family member who had money would, could be the redeemer, the kinsman redeemer that could come back and take responsibility of the situation and buy that land back for their family. Maybe not giving it back to the moron who was in complete debt and lost it, but bring it back into family so that generations later that family would still have their wealth. And the person who sold the land would have to sell that land back. If, if the debt was so bad that a debtor had to sell themselves into bondage, the kinsman redeemer could rescue them and, and, and buy them out of slavery. If a man died without a son to inherit, the, inherit his name and property, a kinsman could, redeemer could come and marry the wood, widow and have an heir. And we know that from Deuteronomy 25, and particularly that situation of the book of Ruth. And here in Exodus 15... This song is not about Boaz, it's not a song about Moses, but it's about the Lord himself. Before the laws of kinsman, redeemer were even given, here is God's people singing of the Lord to redeem them, to save them, to bring them out of his own, uh, out of slavery to be his own. And here, the people of Israel, they just experienced redemption as they're standing by the sea, they've seen it with their very eyes, and what did they do? They sing of their Redeemer. They sing of their Redeemer. And so I ask you, church beloved, 
Do you see in the same situation of singing of their Redeemer how that might be some sort of pattern for us as the church to sing of our Redeemer? I'll give you some evidence then of that. Galatians 3, 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. How did our Redeemer come? You see it there. He became a curse for us to redeem us. His arms were outstretched on the cross. The sacrifice of our sins. He became a curse for us because of our sin to redeem us. Galatians 4, 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born on the law, right? There's Christmas, the incarnation. But to do what? To redeem those who were under the law. To redeem those who were under the curse and sense of the law. So that we might receive adoption as sons. Redemption has a purpose, doesn't it? The purpose of redemption is to bring sinners into his family. It's to adopt you and to bring you in and to call you sons. Ephesians chapter 1, could not, I could not resist bringing this to all's attention once again. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he did what? He lavished upon you. Oh, you need some more? Here you go. Lavished upon you. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mysteries of his will. What's the mystery of his will? The mystery of his will is to save sinners like you and like me. Why would God do that? His love and his grace. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, our debts have been paid fully in Christ. Our redemption is final and complete. And that grace has been lavished upon us. And so this is why we, we do not lose heart, even in difficulty, even in sorrow, and even in sadness, and even in loss. This is why we, we do not lose heart, because even in those dark moments, we understand that the Son of God has come. And He has come to redeem His own. And as we have prayed, and as we have sung, He is coming back for that final redemption. Have hope. So think about this with me. What if the Lord came down and he said he was going to save you, he was going to give you eternal life, he was going to adopt you, all of those wonderful things, but he said it was going to be on the basis of your good work. What if he said it was going to be on the basis of your ability to be obedient and to be holy to his law and to stay from sin? How would that go? If that was the nature of our redemption, then what would you sing? 
I will glory in my Redeemer whose price is my ability to be obedient. Or, in me alone, my hope is found. I am my own light and strength and song. I'm going to stop there because I feel like a heretic singing that. The answer to the question is how do you think this would go is that we would have no joy. We really would not have a song to sing because if it is about us and our ability to redeem ourselves and to save ourselves by our own obedience and by our own ability, there is nothing then to sing about because guess what? I know myself. I can't save myself. And if our songs were only then about me or about you, then they would be depressing. They would be sounds of dirges that are hopeless. But praise God, brothers and sisters, that is not our salvation. We don't sing that way because that's not our salvation. That's not our Redeemer. The Lord is our salvation. He is the one who has adopted us. He is the one who has redeemed us. He is the one who has lavished upon us grace upon grace. Our salvation is not based upon your good ability or your good work because you have none. It's based upon our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, the pure and spotless Lamb. And that is it. John's the only one that agrees with me. Thank you, John. That is it. It's all based upon him. And so if if it is about him as our redeemer, that it's only in Christ, then brothers and sisters, our songs and our singing and our joy should reflect that very thing. And so we sing of our redeemer. And so I invite you to sing with me now. Words are going to be on the screen. Oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Greatest treasure of my longing soul. My God, like you, there is no other. True delight is found in you alone. Your grace, oh, well, too deep to fathom. Your love exceeds the heaven's rage. Your truth, a fount of perfect wisdom, my highest good and my unending need. Verse 2, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, the strong defender of my sorry heart. My sword to fight the cruel deceiver and my Amen. My song when enemies surround me. My hope when 
when tides of sorrows rise. My joy, when trials are abounding, your faithfulness, my refuge in the night. Verse 3, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, gracious Savior of my ruined life, my guilt and cross laid on your shoulders. In your place you suffered, bled, and died. You rose, you rose, the grave and death are conquered. You broke my bonds of sin and shame. Oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer, may all my days bring glory to your name. Amen. Sing. Sing of our Redeemer. But that's not all. We sing of our majesty, or of his majesty, right? We sing of his majesty. We see it flowing throughout this song of God's glorious majesty. It tells what the Lord has done. It's rooted in facts of history. It vividly describes the exodus at the sea, what, what happens to Pharaoh's army the moment the waters crush and rush over them, when the walls come surging down on them. But not God's people. And But there, there in the middle of the, the text, there's a strong contrast that comes up, almost a, a humorous contrast there in the text between the Lord and Pharaoh. You look at verse 9. It says here that Pharaoh in Egypt stands there. The enemy boasts, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide my, the spoil. My desire is to have it filled of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You see, that's what the enemy is saying, but here's the contrast of verse 10. You, meaning the Lord, you blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. So, so do you not hear the humor in that? Here's the enemy. I'm doing this. We're going to get you. Swords are drawn. Here we come. My desire. I'm king. I'm Pharaoh. I'm Lord. What does God do? Wasn't even close. Wasn't even close to being a matchup. Like the ant to the shoe right? The ant may be brave. He comes charging at you. Ah, I'm going to bite you. And he does bite us sometimes. He comes in with all his fury. Bye-bye, <sighs> ant. And this leads the singers to, to sing in verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord? <laughs> Certainly not Pharaoh. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? They, they sing of the majesty of God. When you see and you beheld the majesty of God, the only things you can do is worship. When Moses beheld 
the glory of God at the mountain. In the light of the burning bush, he worshipped God. They sing of his majesty. Verse 3, the Lord is eternal. His name is the Lord, which means I am who I am. He has always been and will always be. In verse 6, it's the divine power of God. His right hand, that he is a warrior and he crushes the enemy. We see his divine wrath poured out in judgment against Egypt. Verse 7, in the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries, right? In your majesty, you overthrow the, your, the adversaries. You send out your fury, it consumes them like stubble. And by the way, there is a play in words with the word stubble there, all the way back to chapter 5, when it comes to Pharaoh trying to give them nothing but stubble to make bricks. And here they are now. It consumes them, burns them up like stubble. The, it's God's greatness and his majesty. He overthrows them as the rebellious. In verse 11, we see the supremacy of God because of the song that is sing. There's none like you. The Lord is utterly incomparable to anything else. He is holy. He is perfect. He is set apart and unique and awesome in glory. The majesty of our God is all over this song. Brothers and sisters, we sing of the majesty of God. There is no one like him. And there's a song that we sing that sings of the majesty of God. Behold our God. And let's sing it together. Who has held the oceans in his hands? Who has numbered every grain of sand? Kings and nations tremble at his voice. All creation rises to rejoice. Verse 2. Who has given counsel to the Lord? Who can question any of his words? Who can teach the one who knows all things? Who can fathom all his wondrous deeds? Verse 3. Who has felt the nails upon his hands, bearing all the guilt of sinful man? God eternal, humble to the grave. Jesus, Savior, risen now. Now the chorus, behold our God. Behold our God, seated on his throne. Come, let us adore him. Behold our King, nothing can compare. Come, let us adore Him. Nothing can compare. Who is like our God? Come, come. And we sang in that third verse about the cross tonight. We sang about Christ. We sang about where our redemption has come from. 
And do you notice how in this song is also in this song of Behold Our God, but also in Exodus 15, that the majesty of God is inseparably linked to the redemption of his people. You cannot sing of the majesty of God without thinking of the glories of the cross. And verse 11 shows that that our redemption, in redemption, that there is no one like our God and how he saves his people. But even greater than the exodus itself is God sending his son, Jesus Christ, to be the sacrifice of sin who died on the cross and was resurrected on the third day. And the gospel shows us that there is no one that compares to Jesus Christ. He is Lord of Lords, and how majestic is his name in all the earth. There is no story like the gospel. There is no reality like the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, when you sing of the majesty of God, you are singing of the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ who came and who died on the cross so that we can have our own exodus from our sin and live eternally with him. And lastly, we must sing of his love. You look at verse 13, it says, You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The people are singing of God's loving kindness, his steadfast love as what? As the source of their redemption. The source of their redemption is the steadfast love of God. To think of redemption again, certainly in the capacity or the, in the context of the majesty of God, but redemption, the gospel, salvation, the cross, we have to focus in on the love of God. The steadfast love of God is that great Hebrew word, kesed. And when, you, and when accurately translated, which I think it is here, as best as we know how, steadfast love, it can also have the, the, the meaning or be translated as covenant love. You know, the English word, the English usage of our, this word love fails us quite a bit. It, it fails us from grasping the full meaning of this word in the Old Testament and in the, and in the New Testament. And the reason is, is because in our language and in our use of it, we, we just muddle it up. We, we complicate it. We, or we add frivolous things to it. The, the closest things besides the gospel that God has given us to help us understand steadfast love, covenantal love, is in with the context of marriage between a man and a woman. But even in that, we muddle it up. We say in one breath, I, I love my wife. And then with another breath, we say, I love tacos. Tacos are pretty good. But we understand the distinction. The language could be the same, but the meaning of it is confusing. Because we certainly do not mean the same thing of loving tacos and loving our, our spouses. 
The idea of love here, the steadfast love of, of God here is incomparable to anything else. Like I said, the closest would be marriage. That's why I like steadfast love, because this gives us the understanding and idea that God's love is unfailing for his people. Exodus and the slavery of his people was not a failure on God's part. It was a triumph of his love to deliver his people and to show them that he is the Lord and to show the nations that, that he is the Lord. And so, and so they sang of his love as the source of their redemption and their salvation. And when they sing, they sing about all that the Lord has done and all that the Lord is doing. Verse 13, right? He, he, in his love, he's guiding them like a good shepherd. Where? To his holy abode which we understand, we know that they're coming to Mount Sinai, they're going to go to Mount Sinai, and then eventually to, to Zion itself in the promised land. In verses 14 through 16, in his love, the Lord has, has gone before them, hasn't he? He's gone before them to do what? To breed fear and terror before the nations, before the peoples that go before them. It says that they will tremble. Those nations, Philistia and Edom and the Moabites, they're, they're going to tremble. They're going to pangs of fear. Pangs of fear, like childbirth, pangs of fear will pass through them. They will melt away. Terror and dread shall fall upon them so that they can pass through. The love of God is working on all things for the good of his people. And at the same time, we see it also working terror against those who are not his people. You look at verse 17, it says, it says here, it says, You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. You will plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. Right. So they're singing how in God's love, he's going to bring them in. He's going to plant them in the place that he has for them. And we understand this, right? Historically speaking, he's talking about the, the promised land and eventually the temple where Israel will, will worship. But this language is pointing forward that it's the planting of them on your holy mountain. It, it is pointing forward to something else. It's almost like this, this language in their song was laying out breadcrumbs for us and for those who were to follow to something that we understand to be something very familiar from the New Testament of a man who said that he would, that he would, uh, that he would plant his people in him. The man who said, I am the vine and you are the branches. The source of their salvation and the source of our salvation, brothers and sisters, is the love of God. And the New Testament speaks of this so much and so often. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. The source of our salvation is the love of God. Ephesians 2, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us. Doesn't that sound like that steadfast love? That great love by which he loved us even when you were dead in your trespasses. This is our condition without Christ. We are dead in our trespasses. And what has he done? By his love, the source of our salvation, he has made us alive together with him. 
By grace you have been saved. He has raised us up. Yes, you were dead. So you've now been raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his kindness, of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You see that? The love of God. The love of God, the great love by which he's loved us. He saw dead sinners. Rebels. And yet in his grace, he lavished upon us. He saved you and raised you up, not only into life, but seated with him. He is the source of our mercy and grace. The love of God is the source of mercy and and grace. In 1 John 4, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. How? How is the love of God manifest among us? Here it is. That God sent his son into the world. Why? So that we might live through him. Look at verse 10. In this is love. Listen, here it is. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son. Remember we talked about the illustration earlier about redemption. If you had to do everything, had to do something to save yourself the gain. That's not the case. He has sent his son. He has sent his son. Not that we have loved him. We have no ability. But that he has loved us. And he sent his son to be what? The propitiation of our sins. That's a big word that means one really important theological fact. And that is this. Is that God... Wrath was completely, 100% satisfied toward his people and the death of his son. And I'm trembling now because I know how much I deserve. I didn't deserve it, but he propitiated our sin, meaning it's done. The work is finished. It's complete. There's no more striving. There's no more wanting and wishing and hoping. It's done. Why? Because of the love of God. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The very motive of our sanctification to living crucified in Christ is what? The love of God. And when hearing, knowing, and experiencing this love, it transforms us, it changes us. And it moves us to do what? To sing. Let's sing. Here is love. Here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as a flood. When the prince of life our ransom shed for us his precious blood, who his love will not remember, who can cease to sing his praise, he can never be forgotten. Throughout heaven's eternal days, 
On the Mount of Crucifixion, fountains open deep and wide. Through the floodgates of God's mercy, float a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love, like mighty rivers, poured incessant from above. Heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. Here is love, verse 3. Here is love that born from the grave death has failed to be found equal to the life of him who saves in the valley of our darkness dawned his everlasting light Perfect love and glorious radiance has repelled death's hellish night. Verse 4, that same love beyond all measure, mocked and slain by hateful man, lives and reigns in resurrection and can never die again. Here is love through all the ages, radiant Son of Heaven He sent, calling home His Father's children, holding forth as worlds they stand. Here is love, vast as the heavens, countless as the stars above, are the souls that he has ransomed. Sing it, precious. Precious daughter's treasured son, we are called to feast forever, on a love beyond our time, glorious Father, Son, and Spirit, now with men are intertwined. Amen. When we close this morning, we are going to read from a few, or we're going to read from Revelation 15. And there in Revelation 15, we will hear of the gathered saints who have gone before us. And I think arguably the context of the gathered saints are the martyred saints. And they are going to sing during the times of plagues and judgment that are come when the bulls and the angels are sent. And the song that they are going to sing is the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Because of the redeeming work of God, the majesty of God, and the love of God. So, brothers and sisters, always let your voice join with those who are singing not only this, the song of Moses, but the song of the Lamb. 
Because of all people, we should be the most joyful, grateful, and humble in our singing as the church. We stood once at the sea, having experienced the salvation of the Lord. And our salvation came through the cross, where the Son of God bled and died, and he took upon himself our sin, our shame, our guilt. The wrath of God, the propitiation, satisfied the wrath of God and the judgment of God that was owed to us. He who knew no sin became, became sin, so that we could become the righteousness of God. The content of our songs will be filled with our Redeemer. It will be filled with his majesty. It will be filled with his love. But brothers and sisters, if we do not sing out, the very rocks will cry out. We must always sing, and we must always sing louder and louder because we are the recipients of such grace. And all of God's people say,